The 415 Express by Amelia B. Edwards Narrated by Ryan and Miranda Johnson Part 2 John Dwerahouse had absconded three months ago, and I had only seen him a few hours back. John Dwerahouse had embezzled 75,000 pounds of the company's money, yet told me that he carried the sum upon his person. Were ever facts so strangely incongruous, so difficult to reconcile? How should he have ventured again into the light of day? How dared he show himself along the line? Above all, what had he been doing throughout those mysterious three months of disappearance? Perplexing these questions, these. Questions which had suggested themselves to the minds of all concerned, which had admitted no easy solution. I could find no reply to them. Captain Prendergast had not even a suggestion to offer. Jonathan Jelf, who seized the first opportunity of drawing me aside and learning all that I had to tell, was more amazed and bewildered than either of us. He came to my room that night, when all the guests were gone, and we talked the thing over from every point of view, without, it must be confessed, arriving at any kind of conclusion. I do not ask you, he said, whether you can have mistaken your man. That is impossible. As impossible as that I should mistake some stranger for yourself. It is not a question of looks or voice, but of facts. That he should have alluded to the fire in the blue room is proof enough of John Dwerrerhouse's identity. How did he look? Older, I thought. Considerably older, paler, and more anxious. He has had enough to make him look anxious anyhow, said my friend, gloomily. Be he innocent or guilty. I am inclined to believe that he is innocent, I replied. He showed no embarrassment when I addressed him and no uneasiness when the guard came round. His conversation was open to a fault. I might almost say that he talked too freely of the business which he had in hand. That again is strange, for I know no one more reticent on such subjects. He actually told you that he had the 75,000 pounds in his pocket? He did. Huh. My wife has an idea about it, and she may be right. What idea? Well, she fancies... Women are so clever, you know, at putting themselves inside people's motives. She fancies that he was tempted, that he did actually take the money, and that he has been concealing himself these three months in some wild part of the country, struggling possibly with his conscience all the time, and daring neither to abscond with his booty nor to come back and restore it. But now that he has come back? That is the point. She conceives that he has probably thrown himself upon the company's mercy, made restitution of the money, and, being forgiven, is permitted to carry the business through as if nothing whatever had happened. The last, I replied, is an impossible case. Miss Jelf thinks like a generous and delicate-minded woman, but not in the least like a board of railway directors. They would never carry forgiveness so far. I fear not. And yet, it is the only conjecture that bears a semblance of likelihood. However... We can run over to Claybrough tomorrow and see if anything is to be learned. By the way, Prendergrass tells me you picked up his cigar case. I did so, and here it is. Jelf took the cigar case, examined it by the light of the lamp, and said at once that it had been beyond doubt Mr. Dwerahouse's property, and that he remembered to have seen him use it. Here, too, is his monogram on the side. He added, A big J, transfixing a capital D. He used to carry the same on his notepaper. It offers, at all events, a proof that I was not dreaming. Aye, 
but it is time you were asleep and dreaming now. I am ashamed to have kept you up so long. Good night. Good night. And remember that I am more than ready to go with you to Clayboro, or Blackwater, or London, or anywhere, if I can be the least of service. Thanks. I know you mean it, old friend. And it may be that I shall put you to the test. Once more, good night. So we parted for that night, and met again in the breakfast room at half-past eight the next morning. It was a hurried, silent, uncomfortable meal. None of us had slept well. We were all thinking of the same subject. Miss Jelf had evidently been crying. Jelf was impatient to be off. And both Captain Prendergast and myself felt ourselves to be in the painful position of outsiders who are involuntarily brought into a domestic trouble. Within twenty minutes after, we had left the breakfast table, the dog cart was brought round, and my friend and I were on the road to Clayborough. "'Tell you what it is, Langford,' he said as we sped along between the wintry hedges. "'I do not much fancy to bring up Dwerrhouse's name at Clayborough. All the officials know that he's my wife's relation, and the subject just now is hardly a pleasant one. If you don't mind much, we will take the 1110 to Blackwater. It is an important station, and we shall stand a far better chance of picking up information there than at Clayborough. So we took the 1110, which happened to be an express, and arriving at Blackwater about a quarter before twelve, proceeded at once to prosecute our inquiry. We began by asking for the station master, a big, blunt, business-like person, who at once averred that he knew Mr. John Dwerhouse perfectly well and that there was no director on the line whom he had seen or spoken to so frequently. "'It used to be down here two or three times a week, about three months ago,' said he, "'when the new line was first set afoot. But since then, you know, gentlemen.' He paused significantly. "'Yes, yes,' he said hurriedly. "'We know all about that. The point now, to be ascertained, is whether anything has been seen or heard of him lately.' Uh, "'Not to my knowledge.' replied the station master. He is not known to have been down the line any time yesterday, for instance? The station master shook his head. The East Anglin line, sir, said he, is about the last place where he would dare show himself. Why, there isn't a station master, there isn't a guard, there isn't a porter who doesn't know Mr. Dwerhouse by sight as well as he knows his own face in the looking-glass, or who wouldn't telegraph for the police as soon as he had set his eyes upon him at any point along the line. Bless you, sir, there's been a standing order out against him ever since the 25th of September last. And yet, pursued my friend, a gentleman who traveled down yesterday from London to Clayborough by the afternoon express testifies that he saw Mr. Dwerrhouse in the train, and that Mr. Dwerrhouse alighted at Blackwater Station. Quite impossible, sir, replied the station master, promptly. Why impossible? Because there is no station along the line where he is so well known, or where he would run so great a risk. He would be just running his head into the lion's mouth. He would have been mad to come nigh Blackwater Station, and if he had come, he would have been arrested before he had left the platform. Can you tell me who took the Blackwater tickets of that train? I can, sir. It was the guard, Benjamin Somers. And where can I find him? You can find him, sir, by staying here, if you please, till one o'clock. He will be coming through with the Up Express from Crampton, which stays at Blackwater for ten minutes. We waited for the Up Express, beguiling the time as best we could by strolling along the Blackwater Road, so we came almost to the outskirts of town, from which the station was distant nearly a couple of miles. 
By one o'clock we were back again upon the platform and waiting for the train. It came punctually, and I at once recognized the ruddy-faced guard who had gone down with my train the evening before. "'The gentlemen want to ask you something about Mr. Dwerahouse, Somers,' said the station master, by way of introduction. The guard flashed a keen glance from my face to Jelf's, then back again to mine. "'Mr. John Dwerahouse, the late director?' said he interrogatively. "'The same,' replied my friend. "'Should you know of him if you saw him?' "'Anywhere, sir.' "'Do you know if he was in the 415 Express yesterday afternoon?' "'He was not, sir.' "'How can you answer so positively?' because I looked into every carriage and saw every face on that train, and I could take my oath that Mr. Dwerahouse was not in it. This gentleman was, he added, turning sharply upon me. I don't know that I ever saw him before in my life, but I remember his face perfectly. You nearly missed taking your seat in time at the station, sir, and you got out of Clayborough. Quite true, guard, I replied. But do you not also remember the face of the gentleman who traveled down the same carriage with me as far as here? It was my impression, sir, that you traveled down alone, said Somers, with a look of some surprise. By no means, I had a fellow traveler as far as Blackwater, and it was in trying to restore him the cigar case, which he had dropped in the carriage, that I so nearly let you go on without me. I remember you saying something about a cigar case, certainly, replied the guard. But you asked for my ticket just before we entered the station. Oh, he did, sir. Then you must have seen him. He sat in the corner next to the very door to which you came. No, indeed, I saw no one. I looked at Jelf. I began to think the guard was in the ex-director's confidence and paid for his silence. If I had seen another traveler, I should have asked for his ticket, added Somers. Did you see me ask for his ticket, sir? I observed that you did not ask for it, but he explained that by saying... I hesitated. I feared I might be telling too much, and so broke off abruptly. The guard and the station master exchanged glances. The former looked impatiently at his watch. "'I am obliged to go on in four more minutes, sir,' he said. "'One last question, then,' interposed Jelf, with a sort of desperation. "'If this gentleman's fellow traveller had been Mr. John Dwerhouse, and he had been sitting in the corner next to the door by which you took the tickets, could you have failed to see and recognize him?' "'No, sir. It would have been quite impossible.' "'And you are certain—' You did not see him. As I said before, sir, I could take my oath I did not see him. And if it wasn't that I don't like to contradict the gentleman, I would say I could take my oath that this gentleman was quite alone in the carriage, the whole way from London to Clayborough. Why, sir, he added, dropping his voice, so as to be inaudible to the station master who had been called away to speak to some person close by. You expressly asked me to give yourself a compartment to yourself, and I did so. I locked you in. And you were so good as to give me something for myself. Yes, but Mr. Dwerahouse had his own key. Oh, I never saw him, sir. I saw no one in that compartment but yourself. Beg pardon, sir, my time is up. And with this, the ready guard touched his cap and was gone. In another minute, the heavy panting of the engine began afresh, and the train glided slowly out of the station. We looked at each other for some moments in silence. I was the first to speak. Mr. Benjamin Somers knows more than he chooses to tell, I said. Humph. Do you think so? It must be. He could not have come to the door without seeing him. It's impossible. There is one thing not impossible, my dear fellow. What's that? That you may have fallen asleep and dreamt the whole thing. Could I dream of a branch of line that I had never heard of? 
Could I dream of a hundred and one business details that had no kind of interest for me? Could I dream of the seventy-five thousand pounds? Perhaps you might have seen or heard some vague account of the affairs while you were abroad. It might have made no impression upon you at the time, and might have come back in your dreams, recalled perhaps by the mere names of the stations on the line. What about the fire in the chimney of the blue room? Should I have heard of that on my journey? Well, no. I admit there is a difficulty about that point. And what of the cigar case? Ah, by Jove, there's the cigar case. That is a stubborn fact. Well, it's a mysterious affair, and it will need a better detective than myself, I fancy, to clear it up. I suppose we may as well go home. The 415 Express by Amelia B. Edwards End of Part 2